This is episode 72 of the Immunology Podcast. Immunology 2024 with Kiko Iwasaki, Francisco Gomez Rivera, and Dr. Jason Augustine. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rout. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Akiko Iwasaki, Francisco Gomez Rivera, and Dr. Jason Augustine from the American Association of Immunologists on the podcast to talk about the upcoming Immunology 2024 meeting. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in the immunology news coming up, but first... Immunology 2024 provides multiple career development sessions, including how to convert your CV into a resume, how to have a successful postdoc experience, interviewing for a job, an NIH grants workshop, and one-on-one consulting sessions to help ensure your career success. And don't miss the AI Jobs Board. This all-immunology meeting takes place May 3rd to 7th in Chicago, Illinois. Visit immunology2024.aai.org for more information. It is another day, another podcast, but our empire is expanding. So I know we have a new one uh, coming out here soon, the Lab Coats and Life podcast, which is a, a joint collaboration between all of us here at, at uh, Stem Cell. So today, so 13th uh, is when this episode comes out, and on the 14th on Valentine's Day, our gift to you, the first episode of the uh, Lab Coats and Life podcast. So we all, uh, people from, from ourselves and also the guys at the Stem Cell podcast, we both uh, joined as uh, co-host together with our super host, Nicole Quinn, who is pre- as a producer of this podcast. Very interesting topics. I got to talk about postdocing and the postdoc experience and about using social media to grow and uh, improve your the reach of your research. So I know that you also recorded, what was your favorite topic that you discussed? Commercialization and bench to, you know, bedside through Biotech was one of the ones I did. So for those who would like to uh, listen to the podcast, you can find it in this feed, wherever you get this podcast. And there's also a website, www.labcoatsandlifepodcast, all in one word, not a com, um, where you can see the list and the upcoming ones too. Um, and there was a giveaway, I think now, so uh, you can uh, sign up before March 27, and there's going to be a lab code giveaway. So you can uh, enter the contest for this on www.stemcell.com forward slash lab coat contest. So good luck for all. And I hope that you guys listen and like it. So again, thank you so much for Dr. Nicole Quinn, who is the director of, of brand and scientific communications and stem cell uh, that is hosting all the episodes together with a smash up of the other hosts. All right. Well, we better dive into it. It's all microbiome all day for me. It just it was one of those times that just happened that way. So this first one though is uh, the di- a different part of the alimentary canal. So we're going to talk about Streptococcus aeruginosus promotes gastric inflammation, atrophy, and tumor genesis in mice, which came out in Cell on January thirtieth. First author Kylie Fu, last author Jun Yu. So gastric cancer much more common in the rest of the world than in the U.S. Um, predominantly due to higher levels of H. pylori, especially in Asia, which is the main bacteria that we all know about that causes this. But they find that even when you eradicate H. pylori, 
the risk doesn't drop all the way back down. And so it's like, is there other bacteria that could be doing this and what's going on? And so people have been looking at this and this paper gets into some, you know, some previously available data and then deep dives this a little bit further, right? So they, uh, they looked at H. pylori negative patients with different levels of gastric problems. So, right, so superficial gastritis, atrophic gastritis, and then all the way to gastric, you know, cancer. So intestinal mesoplasia to gastric cancer. And they found five oral pathogens were enriched. And one of these they really went after, which is streptococcus agenosis or S. agenosis. So that's a gram-positive, non-spore-forming, non-modal bacteria, predominantly all throughout the gastrointestinal tract. But, but includes the stomach. It tolerates acid pretty well. So they first they showed, hey, this is in people, and it's there in people who have gastric cancer more than it's not, even if they don't have H. pylori or after H. pylori eradication. So boom, clinical indication, and they go to the mice. So long story short, in mice, it causes gastric cancer. So it causes gastric gastritis after two weeks. They can use fish to see that it's still there. They have chronic gastritis after three months. <laughs> of this. So here's your three-month experiment, Brenda. I, I'm now feeling you post-Bach. But of course, then you have a nine-month infection with gastric atrophy, metaplasia, and dysplasia. So nine-month experiments, you have to give them and come back nine months later. Hopefully your colonies are all fine. Um, so they did that. They demonstrate it. I don't think there's much more to say other than it causes this. It impairs gastric barrier function. And the, the there's dysbiosis, the microbiome alongside of this. So you see other and this infection drives other things as well. Infection at precancer stage and risks other bacteria, and then you shifted it as well. So they see that this microbiome, what it's doing, leads to other further microbial disruption. But they go a little bit further. So they show it causes mucinous metaplasia in germ-free mice. And they did some allograft studies for you know some cancer lines and so either did in, in orthotopic or into the you know to another part of the body or into the gastric chamber you know into the stomach itself and it drives cancer in those um they do show they're like how does this work right so they actually did some cell signaling here they identified uh that it has a surface protein called tp tmpc which binds the anxa2 receptor and that's important for colonization. And so they show that, hey, if you, you know, kill that in the bacteria or knock it out in people, so either side of this, then the effect goes away because it can't colonize and adhere and, and go intracellular and all of that good stuff. So, and it shows that it activates the MAP kinase pathway through this interaction because they do the cell signaling and then they do the cell signaling in the absence of the receptor and this activation, it goes away. So that's possible ERK, P-junk, you know, all, all that good stuff. Some cyclin D thrown in there. So they do a pretty good job saying, hey, this is another bad bug. This is how it causes cancer. And here's a way to block it. I'm really happy that they did not res resort to drinking it to show that it will get You know, you only have to do that once, right? Like that famous experiment with H. pylori that the, yep. the guy that discovered it and associated with ulcers actually drank some of it to prove that that was indeed the source of ulcers and not just, you know, bad mood from the day before uh, or just stress or whatever people thought uh, of bad food that people maybe thought was the reason for ulcers. So I'm glad that this guy did not do that. 
Um, just so, so to make sure I understand, when it comes to the the generation of this dysplasia and 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 and, and kind of gastric cancer, how, is it just about the inflammation caused by this bacteria that is capable of really kind of uh, you know digging itself uh, the way to the epithelium of the, or is it about specific signaling? Some of the specific signaling leads to this intestinal metaplasia, right? Okay. So cyclins, you have more cell cycles, you get this intestinal metaplasia where you, you start shifting your cell type. That's like Barrett's esophagus is what that's called. And your cell type shift, that's a precursor of cancer coming. Oh, I see. And this, 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 um, because I see from the, from the abstract, the graphic abstract, what you mentioned that it binds to uh, TMPC. TMPC is it, and then it binds to AXN, right? And that causes that MAP kinase, which is, we know, oncogenic. Exactly. That was my point I wanted to make. So there is something, some specific also. It's not just that it's the damage that is causing and inflammations, that there's some specific. Um, um, it causes this uh, mucus, mucinous metaplasia on its own. Once you have continued metaplasia, you're going to get some cancer. And this is also the case for H. pylori. Is it a yep. similar? Yeah, okay. but also causes intestinal metaplasia. Okay. And oh, by the way, they also show both of these together are worse, which nice. surprise you. Yeah. Great. Well, can you treat this? Other H. pylori, you can treat the antibiotics. Can I you don't know. They didn't get that far here with being able to eradicate it. Hmm. Okay. Good to know. There are so many things in life that can give us cancer. Yay. All right. Uh, talking about giving us cancer. Uh, no, actually, no. I won't talk. I won't be talking about cancer. Um, so I have two very interesting, very interesting stories for today. Uh, the first one, uh, I really like. Well, I think the topic is really cool. This is. This is a kind of, I think this is a kind of article that, you know, Jeff Bezos sees online and gets very excited about because it is about aging and how to prevent aging. So I'm pretty sure there's a lot of, you know, billionaires looking at this research and going, oh, there's actually a way. I don't have to just, you know, take the, 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 the plasma from young people and it might be a better way of going about it. So the paper is called prophylactic and long-lasting efficacy of senolytic CAR T-cells against age-related metabolic dysfunction. And it basically, the title gives most of the, <laughs> the, the juice away, but I will go a little bit on detail. It was, was published in Nature Aging. Uh, it's a bit, a bit, couple of weeks old, but I thought it was really cool. And I really wanted to, to talk about this paper uh, from the 24th of January, first and first and corresponding author, uh, Corina Amor, uh, and uh, first co-first author, Ines Fernandez Maestre. Uh, so Corina Amor, uh, she was, uh, she, she was, she started her, this, I guess she started this research at Sloan Catering, uh, Memorial Sloan Catering in New York, but she is now a PI at uh, Cold Spring Harbor Labs. So that's where her affiliation is. Um, and this paper is actually, uh, in a way, the um, the continuation of a previous uh, a job, a work uh, published by uh, Corina Morso, in which they found they were looking into getting rid of senescent 
cells. So senescence, cellular senescence, uh, as kind of uh, approached in this paper, I think there is a little bit of controversy or some people senescence means different things for different people. But in the context of this work, cellular senescence is a stress response program that is characterized by two major things. On the one hand, cell cycle arrest. Uh, and on the other hand, the production of what is known as senescence-associated secretory phenotype, CESP, uh, which includes pro-inflammatory cytokines and matrix remodeling enzymes. So basically these cells, they're not only kind of, they're not really quiescent, they are uh, arrested in their cell cycle, but they are making, uh, uh, they are affecting the cells around them and importantly, they produce cytokines and messengers that are associated with inflammation. And it is, I think, fairly accepted that the accumulation of these uh, senescent cells with this CESP uh, phenotype uh, increases during aging as a consequence of tissue damage. And the fact that although in young people, these cells are usually removed by the immune system, but as your immune system ages and the amount of these cells increases, at some point, the, the balance starts tipping in favor of the accumulation of these cells. And that this chronic pro-inflammatory milieu that these cells uh, secrete uh, leads to a range of age-related uh, tissue pathologies. And so I think, it's, I think it's non-controversial to say then the accumulation of these senescent cells is a major driver of what we consider aging. So, of course, the, I, what, what, what uh, this, this project started, uh, for what I can tell from the publications, is they uh, tried to find why, I think, uh, while working at Slow Catering, uh, her first paper, we're looking into how can we target senescent cells? Could we get rid of them with, you know, good old CAR T cells? And they had, uh, in this work from 2020, they had identified a particular protein called their receptor for urokinase type plasminogen activator, uh, short UPA, uh, which they identified as associated with senescent cells. And that um, if you eliminated cells expressing this receptor, they uh, you could basically get rid of most senescent cells without major... Um, without major downsides. And mice could, if you had knockout mice in this in this uh, protein, they were fine, they were mostly normal. So there didn't seem to be a critical protein, but it did seem to strongly associate with senescent cells. So in the what they do in this paper is they look uh, at long-term studies in which they have aged mice, and they show whether if you target this UPA uh, molecule using CAR T cells, whether you can get rid of senescent cells and whether this gives the mice some aging advantage. And that's basically what they show. So what they do, what I said, CAR T cells, they found, you know, they make CARs against uh, UPAR, and then they infuse car, uh, uh, mice with these CAR T cells. And they show that even in old mice that have, you know, a bunch of senescent cells, old mice being 18 to 20 months, so like one year and a half, two years old, um, they show that they could eliminate cells. Like if they look at the at tissues of this mice, they could in principle eliminate what would be considered senescent cells uh, without major downsides to the mice. And the mice seem to uh, tolerate the, 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 the therapy pretty well. Um, and that they could 
kind of revert some or reduce some of the markers of age-related metabolic dysfunction, particularly when it comes to management of glucose levels, you know, glucose levels on 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 on, on resting state, uh, the exercise capacity. So there's certain measures that they use on mice that measure their metabolic function, and they seem to be able to kind of improve a little bit these measures on aged mice. Uh, so lower fasting glucose level, better better glucose homeostasis in general, insulin levels, which suggest better pancreatic function, improved exercise capacity. These are the things that they seem to improve in mice treated with these CAR T cells. Uh, not only that, but they'll show that if you infuse young mice around three weeks, three months old, I mean, they don't need it. They don't have a senescent cells of, you know, of consequence, but that this in the long term prevents or reduces the, the development of senescent cells and reduces the development of metabolic uh, disease or metabolic uh, uh, aging in a way. So basically you can inject this once, you get these cells and then they patrol your body for senescent cells for uh, an extended period of time. They also can don't one of the also the tests if they in, try to induce uh, metabolic syndrome by feeding mice had five high fat diet again having these CAR T cells protects the mice from you know, the 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 uh, big part of this metabolic effect so yeah so it looks like you know for what they they're showing you have these CAR T cells can be the fountain of youth by getting rid of all those senescent cells. I mean, I'm pretty sure, uh, I think that the thing was pretty solid. It's hard to say how it would translate into humans, of course. Uh, but I think they went through a, a lot of effort put on uh, showing that it was safe. They tested, you know, they looked at all the tissues. They don't seem to see any toxicity, any, uh, you know, undesired effects of targeting this protein. Um, so, I you know, but well, it's a very hot topic, you know, it's aging, things that can prevent aging. Uh, so super interesting. Pretty sure this uh, is, is, a, is a field to look closely, but you know, keep uh, always. Uh, I would say a critical eye because oftentimes these things they look so great, and then people really want them to be true. But we'll see how it translates to humans. Way to give me hope, and then take it right. I away. know this was for you. I mean, you know, if they ever do a clinical trial, you should have signed up. I would, but I mean, I'm not old enough for that now. But no, I probably am. <laughs> And reverse that gray hair I'm getting. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. All those senescence hair follicles. Um, but I think it's super interesting. It would be, I mean, it, for me, it sounds too good to be true. That no, it probably is. Like, it's hard to believe, right? Uh, I, think, I think the experiments are solid. So, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see how this story advances. I mean, if I'm... Um, I'm sure they have patents and a couple of VC, you know, fun, trying to fund them or I haven't looked into that, but I'm pretty sure that's already, you know, uh, being hyped in some uh, Silicon Valley uh, uh, meeting somewhere, but uh, still very interesting. No, it makes it's it's the it's the future, right? Well, here we go. One more microbiota today. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is more of a general story. So this is microbiota-derived butyrate restricts tough cell differentiation via histone deacetylase-3 to modulate intestinal type 2 immunity. In immunity, first authors Emily M. Eshelman, last authors Teresa Allen-Hunt, uh, also coming out 
February 13th. What day it says it's coming out and what day you have it. They're never the same in journals. Mm. All right. So tough cells, right, are uh, these cells, these little tufts on them. Surprise, surprise. Mostly in the small bowel that are responsible for type 2 immunity against hemoliths. Uh, that ties into ILC2s, so the innate lymphocyte 2s. Uh, they're trying to understand how the microbiome modulates these cells at baseline. So what they look, what, the, what is already known is that succinate, induct, if you give mice or succinate or you do it in human cell lines, you get more tough cells that differentiate. But the how and where that succinate's coming from and all this other stuff wasn't established. So what they showed is if you deplete the microbiome, so germ-free mouse or vancomycin, you get more succinate production, ergo, or more succinate and more tough cells. So it goes, so right phrase, succinate induction is increased in the absence of the microbiome. So we eat some food that becomes succinate all the time. That effect is stronger without your microbiome present. Okay, so what's happening then? That means that somehow the microbiome is inhibiting the effects of succinate on tough cell, ILC2, IL13 mediated immunity, right? So they demonstrate that butyrate producing bacteria are what's doing this. So butyrate from butyrate producing bacteria is competitive in this pathway with succinate, so opposite side of the coin. So butyrate turns down succinate induction of tough cells. Okay, well, how's that happening? So they use F. prounitzi, which is a well-known butyrate producer and monoassociation to kind of establish, like, here's a bug that can do it. Or if I give you butyrate by oral gravage, I can recapitulate. So they show it's a butyrate. They can kill the bacteria and just give you dead bacteria, and the butyrate still works. All not surprising, right? So this isn't like cell-cell adhesion signaling. It's the butyrate. So they established that. Well, how is butyrate doing this? So they show that it is actually through histone deacetylase 3, so HDAC3. So deleting HDAC3 inhibited tough cell expansion and impaired type 2 responses. So butyrate drives HDAC3. That makes sense. So you have this butyrate driving, butyrate activates HDAC. HDAC inhibits tough cell. So no, knockout, sorry, I'm getting this backwards. Knockout of HDAC inhibits tough cell, right? Butyrate inhibits tough cell. Butyrate turns down HDAC, which then leads to, and then they show this, it leads to the chromatin being unavailable for induction into tough cells in epithelial cells, right? So everything has epithelial origin in these cells. So if you look at the epithelial compartment with organoids and stem cell progenitors, what, what epigenetic modifications occur there will then cause it to differentiate one way or the other, right? So all, all the gut cells that we're talking about here have the same origin, so it's not, and they can shift from back and forth to each other. So what your epigenetic changes are really matter in this like microenvironment. So the gut bacteria are causing epigenetic changes through a metabolite known as butyrate, which is a well-known metabolite, right? It's one of the most common short-chain fatty acids. It's very well studied. That then leads to epigenetic changes, which then, then determines your cell fate. And so they're like, well, is this a mouse thing or a human thing? So they take some human organoids and demonstrate this as well, which is pretty good that they could show that because at baseline, you don't actually see much tough cells in human organoids, but they can drive the system with succinate. 
or deletion of HDAC. And so they can see enough pop up. Then they're like, oh, if we get nothing and now we do this intervention, we get a ton. That tells you a lot. So that also seems to be holding true. So it's an interesting mix of how the microbiome is actually altering your immune compartment through altering the cells that are available because these tough cells, right, they're going to spawn cytokines that drive type 2 immunity. They also see the ILCs number change. So whenever you do this and you have changes in tough cells, you have changes in the associated ILC compartment. And so it, it's pretty neat in that it ties it together. It's a lot of pictures. It's a lot of organoid stuff, which, which I'm a fan of. Uh, but the fact that they're able to link very specifically, not just one bug, right? Because there's lots of ways to get butyrate in your gut. But able to link butyrate production to a specific pathway, so epigenetic changes through histone deacetylation, that then drives, you know, differentiation. And they also actually then link this to the spire two protein, and then um, the histone three acetylase. Obviously, right, the deacetylase and acetylase are opposite of each other. So they show that it's all connected in a, in a very unsurprising manner. And they kind of get through it and say, hey, here's the promoter region of this protein spire, spy three, which is being affected by the histones, right? So this one, they look at binding of the histone to this region in the promoter and show that when it's available or not, they're seeing these downstream changes. So it's a pretty well done piece of work. They take human patient organoids as well and establish this alongside it. So they get some human data to correlate with the, with the mouse studies where they can, once it's kind of locked in. Okay. I mean, you're what you eat. Uh, I also think butyrate has also been associated with like direct effect on B cells, for example. I think they're also through epigenetic uh, uh, influences. Uh, so I think those short-term fatty acids are super interesting. There are so many effects uh, that they have on whatever is exposed to it in the gut. So for uh, closing today, so first I told you about the fountain of youth, and now I'm going to tell you about the horse, the, the curse of being a woman and having your immune system, you know, constantly betray you because I'm sure you know Women are much more likely to get autoimmune diseases. And so five out of four patients with autoimmune diseases are female. And there are certain diseases such as, uh, you know, lupus, SLE, which is a ratio is nine to one, and may, and females to males. And that's uh, and so on in other uh, autoimmune diseases. So... It's always a question, uh, you know, why, where is this difference coming from? What is the biological reason for this clear uh, disparity in uh, autoimmunity? So in this paper uh, called, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right, exist, exist, ribonucleoproteins promote female sex bias autoimmunity and uh, this was published in Cell. First, uh, author Diana Dow from the lab of Howard Chang at Stanford University. And basically, what they what they look uh, in this is in in the role of a particular very important uh, group of kind of proteins that are present in every single uh, cell of a female's body, uh, and this is uh, these 
complex called Exist, X-I-S-T. So I'm not sure how we're supposed to pronounce it. So I hope I'm doing it right. So this Exist is a long, so is the name given to a long known coding RNA that uh, is present in all of the female uh, uh, cells and uh, epigenetically silences one of the two X chromosomes. And this is very important because you want to have only kind of the genetic dose of one X chromosome. You don't want to have double. And that's something that, you know, males by definition would never have because they have a Y chromosome uh, next to the X. And this is not a minor thing. For example, some genes that are X-linked is TLR7. So you can have things that you don't want to have too much of it. Definitely not double. So this 17 KB long-coding, uh, uh, non-coding uh, non RNA, a 19 uh, kilobase pairs in humans, uh, is transcribed only from the inactive X chromosome, uh, and is critical for this X inactivation uh, establishment in females. For for doing this, it associates with multiple proteins. Here I have a number of 81 unique binding proteins and form a ribonucleoprotein complex. So basically a mix of RNA and, and uh, proteins. And this, they do you know, multiple interactions and they make this complex that is in charge of silencing the expression of the second X chromosome. And there's already some data that suggests that this complexes are immunogenic. So what they do in this in this uh, in this uh, publication or in this work, they try to kind of tear apart the effects of really this ribonucleoprotein complex in initiating or generating autoimmunity versus the effects of hormones and you know other things that have to do with differences, the biological differences between female and male organisms. So for this. I think is very interesting. They have a system in which they have an inducible but non-silencing version of exist that is introduced in an uh, in an autosome, so out independent of the X chromosome in uh, mice that they can express with doxycycline. They can induce the expression in both females, or in this case, in males. Right? That's where where it matters. So you have mice that are basically male and they express all the things and all the hormones and all the other things that are uh, uh, associated with being male. Uh, but on top of that, they express this RNP complex, but these, the, the, they make a change in the sequence. So the mind, the, the, you know, the least they can do uh, to prevent the actual silencing function. So they, they, they remove what they call an A repeat element that is required for the silencing uh, by exist, but they leave everything else. So you have male cells that are still expressing this complex. It's non-functional, non but it mostly binds to all of the expected proteins uh, of 71 of the 81 they were expecting. Um, and basically what they show is that when they study uh, what happens in these male mice, they show that they can uh, mimic a lot of the autoimmunity that they see in females by expressing this complex. And they can initiate, they have a model of SLE, this pristine model in which they inject pristine to mice is a hydrocarbon that initiates and ends up generating autoantibodies. They generate, you know, the Fridays. I know many of the hallmarks of SLE, of, of, of lupus, 
and they uh, show that in mice that are, so not every, every mice can be induced this way, not black six, for example, there's specific SJLJ mice that they can be used. And when they, these mice, if they're male, they usually don't develop this autoimmunity. If they're female, they mostly develop autoimmunity. But if they're male and they are expressing exist, they can induce SLE in these mice, showing that this complex can be a major source of autoimmune antigens uh, that can be targeted by protein, by, by the immune system in, in these mice. So I think, in principle, they do uh, many different you know, iterations, they, but this is the, 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 the major take-home message is that they can drive autoimmunity only by expressing this female-only uh, component. And moreover, when they look into uh, patient serum from people with SLE, they also find that they can find autoantibodies recognizing complexes derived from exist. Therefore, suggesting that also in humans, uh, I mean, it's not it's, it's, it's correlation, does not mean causation, but humans with SLE do develop titers of autoantibodies that are uh, targeted to these antigens found on this RS uh, ribonucleoprotein uh, that is coordinated by this uh, exist non-coding, long non-coding RNA. So yeah, basically we are betrayed by our own genetic. Isn't that sad, Jason? Don't you feel, aren't you happy that you don't have to worry about that now? Aren't I losing the rest of my Y chromosome will eventually become, you know, Oh yeah, I heard about that. And like there aren't going to be men anymore, so I'm not sure here. <laughs> yeah, it's in the white chromosome is apparently becoming smaller and smaller because it's less and less important. Sorry, but I think you are safe for your children too. We got some time, but it's a little sketchy. Just saying. Well, the alternative is having autoimmunity, so you know well, I'm not I mean, sure who. Real alternative is they're going to have you know, artificial wombs and whatever and men won't be needed anymore and it'll be okay well i don't know who who uh told you about our secret world domination plan but i think we're gonna ha have to get rid of you now we know sorry we know it's inevitable yeah. well anyways we're going to be speaking with members of the american association of immunologists about the upcoming immunology 2024 meeting in just a moment but before we get to that cell therapy news is celebrating its 25th anniversary this free weekly newsletter brought to you by Stem Cell Science News summarizes the latest research, news, jobs, and events in cell therapy research. Sign up at www.celltherapynews.com to keep up with the next generation of research and innovation and join the celebration. For our second part of the show today, uh, we have a very special conversation in preparation for the upcoming AAI uh, meeting, uh, Immunology 2024, that is going to take place in Chicago this year between the 3 and 7th of May. And we have some uh, representatives and some people involved with the AI that are, are going to talk to us about the meeting, about what to expect. So joining us today uh, again uh, for a second time, we have uh, Professor Akiko Iwasaki. She is, of course, Sterling Professor of Immunology and Molecular Cellular and De Developmental Biology at Yale University. But she's also here in her role as president of AAI uh, for this round. Uh, and she's going to be talking about uh, the the chosen topics to focus on at the meeting this year and her uh, very important presidential address. 
Also joining us uh, today is Francisco Gomez Rivera. He is a graduate student, uh, a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan. He was awarded uh, one of the AAI's 2023 Minority Scientist Award, and he's going to be uh, chatting with us about his experience attending AAI as a graduate student. And uh, last but not least, we have Jason Augustine. He worked for many years at the uh, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, as a research microbiologist and immunologist. He's going to be heading a conversation from the Minority Affairs Committee, talking about careers at federal agencies and the federal government. So that's a very interesting topic to, to touch upon. So welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us today at the Immunology Podcast. Thank you for having us. All right, so AAI's Immunology 2024 is in Chicago this year. So I guess the first question is, what are you guys looking forward to most in having the conference in general and at Chicago this time around? Well, I'm always excited to see my colleagues and friends from the field of immunology and learning about the latest what's happening in the field of immunology. And Chicago, um, it's a great city. Um, it's a hub for many people, you know, it's easy to get to from many different places. And uh, it's also a fun city, um, maybe outside the conference, people can visit the city a little bit uh, to relax. What about uh, you and the case of um, uh, Francisco, you study in Michigan and Arbor, right? It's not that far from Chicago, so it's going to be a quick, a quick ride. Have you been there? I guess you've been there many times already. Yeah, I've already been in Chicago. It's a wonderful city and it's very close from Michigan. And and Jason, you where where were you where are you based in in the U.S.? I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is about four hours driving um, south of Chicago. And I haven't been there, but I'm looking forward to it. And with the meet, I always look forward to the meetings, um, especially with the graduate students and um, the early career um, scientists, uh, immunologists to collaborate with them and try to help them to find their niches, um, especially if they're interested in government. So maybe we can start talking about some of the, the, the highlights for each of you individually. As you now mentioned it, Jason, uh, you will be leading a, a conversation about careers in government. Would you like to give our listeners a, a kind of quick overview of how your career uh, was and how did you experience working at the EPA and how did you find yourself there? I will start with the very last thing you said, how did I fund myself? Um, when I was making the decision on career choices uh, um, in graduate school, I saw my mentors um, in, the, in, in, in the office and in the lab all night, every day, seven days a week. And I was asking, what are they doing up all night? Because we, the students, they're working in the lab. And um, they said, well, we're writing grants. My next question was, where are you, uh, where are you sending these applications to? Most of it was to the government, the federal government. So I started to research and find whether where in the federal government they were doing research themselves. And several came up and my interest in the environment 
um, led me to the Environmental Protection Agency. I didn't know they were doing any immunological work. In fact, I'm the one who started doing that there and collaborating with virologists and others to try to understand the effects of the environment on our health. Last year, Dr. Um, Fauci gave a talk at the conference and he mentioned 10 reasons, 10 um, lessons learned from the pandemic. One, one of them was that we as an organization or we as scientists had neglected to communicate our science with the public. But the other one that most important is that almost everything, every disease process has an origin in the environment. And for years, I've been the only one from the Environmental Protection Agency on the environmental side that was presenting at AAI. And I think we should bring those together because while the environmentalists, the people who are doing that research are finding a whole lot of things that are going wrong, we are trying to find the cures inside, but we are missing the origins. And working together, I think we can solve this problem. So that's how I ended up at the EPA because they had, the federal government had the money before they even gave it to schools and other institutions, we had our own part. So we still had to write proposals, but not as extensive as what you would do in academia. Plus, you knew the people that were disbursing the funds. So you basically decided to just cut out the middleman and just go where the funds are. Smart, smart. I like it. This idea of, of trying to get more better collaboration right between uh, the federal government. And I think this applies to any country. I mean, we're here talking about the U.S., but of course, I'm not from the U.S., but I can absolutely um, agree that any government needs to have close communication between, you know, academia, scientists, and the people that are actually there, you know, making the decisions when it comes to, to policy. So that's that's really nice. And just, um, I don't want you to, you know, spill the beans on the podcast, but for those people that might be interested in attending AAI and are thinking, you know, for are thinking of considering a career in in public service, what what kind of what kind of careers are nowadays available for recent graduates or or people that would like to make the switch? What can they look for? What you can look forward to is um, a lot of working together, not just with within the agency itself, but outside of the agency in academia and um, with other agencies, um, nationally and globally, people are doing things, uh, the governments are doing a lot of research that we give to the public. And, you know, public health is, is one of the um, biggest things if you don't have proper public health, then many of your policies, other policies are going to go by the wayside. COVID showed us that. So in the federal government, yes, you 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 are dedicated, you have dedicated your life to serving the public. Although it's here is the US public, but the work we do has global implications. Say when we look at climate change, we're not just looking at climate change as it affects the United States. 
we look at globally and the the results of our research is open access so everybody can access it and reach out and collaborate with us so i'd love to go down the rabbit hole of global warming and fungal infections we'll have to save that for another time because uh, that's quite the rabbit hole but uh to continue on the conference theme akiko you are giving the presidential address this year the symposium. So I was wondering if you could give us a little preview just to get people inter even more interested in coming and hearing what you're going to be talking about. Yeah, thank you. Um, so there's a couple of different things I want to highlight. One is the president's program uh, where uh, I'm giving a president's address. That will be um, the first day, the Friday, May 3rd, uh, where I will be talking about learning immunology from viral infections. Um, so throughout my career, um, I've been very interested in the host pathogen interface, uh, particularly looking at viral infection and learning from infection uh, how the host immune system is programmed to defend against the infection when we encounter it the second time around. Um, so by studying viral infections and immune responses generated, uh, we were able to uh, obtain a lot of key insights that we're now applying to develop new and better vaccines. And so that's one of the themes is uh, really learning immunology from viruses and how we can sort of take advantage, uh, take leverage of that knowledge to uh, develop better vaccines and better immunotherapeutic uh, strategies. Um, and I'll also, um, you know, sprinkled in that talk would also be some of the challenges that I've faced uh, throughout my career um, and, and how I was able to uh, overcome that with, um, you know, seeking mentorship and teamwork and uh, many other people's help. So, and, and of course, the trainees, um, you know, played a huge role in every step along the way. Uh, so, yeah, it'll be um, some, some of science, some of uh, challenges and um, how overcoming those challenges kind of made me, uh, you know, better PI and also uh, sort of the importance of mentorship and uh, generating and nurturing the next generation of scientists. Um, and then the second part of that uh, program is the President's Symposium. Uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, four um, speakers that are giving this symposium, and it's called the Immune System and Tissue Homeostasis and Disease. Uh, it really encompasses a lot of uh, cool new topics, uh, cutting-edge research done by spectacular scientists. Um, you know, Yasmin Belkade uh, will be talking about microbiome control of host immunity. Susan Keck will be talking about um, T-cell fate decisions during infection. Uh, Mark Jenkins will be talking about how antigen-specific CD4 T-cell memory form during infection. And Diane Mathis will talk about T-reg control of tissue homeostasis. So you can see that there's a lot of different um, expertise and um, fields and discipline that is um, will be presented at the at the this uh, president's president symposium. And obviously, there are other amazing programs, uh, distinguished lectures, and major symposia and uh, poster sessions, and so on. Really, an all-star. Uh... Cast we have in this in this presentation. Oh man, I'm so much looking forward to attending. I know this. I, I'm gonna make a shameless plug here. Many of these people we have had in the show. We're looking forward to seeing them again. Uh, and 
of course, uh, looking at the latest research and 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 all all the all of them together in one place. That's that's really excellent. Um, so one of the things we also would like to highlight um, is that uh, AI not not only has, of course, this is annual uh, conference, but AI is a large uh, association institution that also offers a lot of help to immunologists mostly from the US, but also from overseas. And one of the things that I think is important to, to highlight for, for listeners is that the amount of awards and scholarships and uh, that they, they provide. Um, so I would like to ask you maybe, Akiko, to give your view as part of you know, AI's leadership, what does it mean to, to uh, give these awards, to give this, this uh, uh, travel uh, scholarships. And maybe, uh, Francisco, if you would like to follow up with your experience being, uh, you know, a laureate uh, by AAI and how that has helped you, what, what your experience was uh, last year. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, you know, I've been serving on the AI Council for the last seven years and really um, learning the inner workings of what AI does. And what really amazes me every time is um, how generous AI is to its membership. Um, it it, um, it provides for more than 50% of the member abstract um, submitted some sort of um, travel support so that people can attend this meeting. And also um, AI will is anticipating to award uh, 600 awards in travel grants and um, other um, awards, uh, career awards and, and so on which is worth um, around half a million dollars. So this is a huge amount of investment that the um, uh, association's making, but it's really uh, serving the membership and uh, hopefully nurturing the next generation of scientists um, like Francisco. Um, and then we also have the uh, very prestigious career awards that we give every year. Uh, these are based on membership nomination and uh, selection by the uh, award award committee, and uh, I'm very delighted that some really brilliant people are being being featured this year for the various career awards that we have. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of the great thing that AI does is to highlight the accomplishment and promise of uh, its membership through awards. So Francisco, what are you looking forward to as an awardee and coming up on Chicago? Any any bucket list for conference or Chicago? Yeah, I think for the conference, um, I also have to say that um, AI have been contributing to my mentoring career and as a trainee. So definitely I am honored to to have that award for as a minority student. And it, it highlights the importance of having a diversity as well in, in our organization. And I say our because I'm part of it, I remember. So every time that you apply for um, for an abstract, I encourage all the grad students to, to submit as a member because it's a unique experience and you will learn a lot about others that are doing science similar to you or you learn for new topics in, in immunology as well. But it's not also, it's not only about science, it's also about um, teaching experience and how to communicate your science to others and people that are not expert in, in, the, in the niche that you're working, right? And there is a lot of curiosity. And if, if you are, as a scientist, we all are curious about um, how can we learn about other science. Um, in the context of, of having an AI as a unique experience is a wonderful, I encourage all the grad students and all the trainees to apply to all these awards. Can I ask Francisco, um, 
you know, for most, most students are concerned, how much does it cost to be a member of the AI as a student? It's not, it's not that expensive. It's less than a hundred dollars. And then you get access to this, 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 this awards and this scholarships and this, this network. I think it sounds very, very advantageous. Yeah. Um, so moving on to the program and kind of the, uh, the spirit of the conference, of course, one of the things that is one of the topics that is still very much, um, relevant to, uh, immunology nowadays is the, uh, the, the, well, COVID and the aftermath of the, of the pandemic, uh, Akiko, you work a lot on not only acute COVID, but nowadays it becomes more and more relevant studying in long COVID, a lot of recent advances in our understanding. Um, what is, uh, what do you think this year will be the, the highlights of, of, of the immunology around COVID and long COVID that you would like to maybe, uh, highlight? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so yeah, we have been studying COVID um, both during the acute phase and the chronic phase uh, of disease. And um, in my presidential address, I will certainly be covering some of that, um, some of the latest learnings uh, about the pathogenesis and potential um, way of thinking about treatment. Um, it's really a dire situation where um, estimated 65 million people around the world are suffering from these um, post-acute phase of uh, disease from COVID. And uh, along with that discussion would be um, obviously, how do we prevent it and how do we treat it? And in terms of how do we prevent it, um, we obviously need uh, vaccines. Um, our current vaccines are really great in preventing severe disease, um, but it, it doesn't do a great job of uh, preventing transmission and uh, infection altogether. And I think, um, you know, invoking mucosal immune responses using nasal vaccines or inhaled vaccines uh, have a hold of promise to prevent transmission. And that will obviously um, provide the herd immunity that we need to contain the virus and control. And that's going to be important for preventing both acute and long, long COVID diseases. Um, and there are, there are many other um, great uh, topics that are going to be cov covered in the uh, symposium. Uh, including uh, immune responses to chronic viral infection uh, and other types of infections. Uh, that's one of the major symposia. And uh, looking at, um, you know, emerging uh, therapeutic strategy for chronic inflammatory diseases, which, was, which will obviously have also some overlap with long COVID. Um, and then all the other topics that really target the fundamental um, insights in immunology, uh, speaking about B cells, T cells, um, myeloid cells, um, and tissue resident memory. There's going to be a lot of interesting talks that are relevant to, to trying to figure out how to deal with these uh, conditions like long COVID. So to kind of wrap this up in, in a way, clinically, you know, conferences can be anywhere from the, the, the beginning discoveries to the things that are going to hit patients in the next year or two. Where, where do you see those new clinical advances you think we're going to hear about at the conference? And this is a question for each of you, but where, where, where do you think, not, not the far horizon, but that near horizon next is going to, is we're going to hear about at Immunology 2024? So, yeah, there are uh, lots of, as you say, you know, science and immunology can go from all the way from basic insights and discovery to translation to clinical applications. And uh, when you think about 
one year away, that's you know very much uh, in the clinical trial phase uh, of um, program. And uh, it, it's great that we have some uh, topics like this being covered in the major symposia. Um, for example, we have people from uh, the industry coming to tell us about the recent breakthrough um, in emerging therapeutic strategies. Um, so this is uh, going to be great uh, because we, some of the basic scientists can learn from uh, the efforts that are ongoing to really um, bring these drugs to, uh, to patients. Uh, we also have a session on um, unleashing targets of uh, novel cancer immunotherapeutics. Um, and so that is, again, the sort of cutting edge research that's um, ready for translation, ready for clinical application. Uh, that's also going to be presented by leaders in that field. So I think we'll hear a lot of talks that are, you know, close to or even uh, in the process of uh, being translated into uh, clinical application. So especially, I think, Jason, you mentioned that you really enjoy uh, looking at the young researchers and their, how they present. Um, and I guess in your case, for example, Francisco, you haven't been attending the AI for so long, I assume. But what is... Uh, maybe would you like to comment on what is your favorite part of attending such a large immunology conference? I think AI is very special. It's a little bit overwhelming. There's so many sessions at the same time, but it does seem like a great place to meet everyone uh, in the same place. So maybe if you, Jason, would like to give a, a taste of what is that you enjoy the most about uh, coming to AI. First, let me say that, um, like Francisco, I got attached to AI in graduate school. I got two travel awards. Um, we couldn't afford it. And um, so that got me um, hooked. The other thing is, um, when I started going to AI, it was part of FASEB. Right? So it was a big, we just had a little section in a big FASEB meeting. But now that AI is on its own, you can meet all these immunologists from around the world with a wealth of knowledge. My favorite part, <laughs> incidentally, is that big gala. When all the students, all the professors, everybody come together and you can, my advice usually to the young folks is don't be afraid of approaching folks you know, you, they think that you're on this pedestal or they put you there. Really and truly, once you ask a scientist a question, what do you do? What is it you're working on? You, they won't stop talking. <laughs> and you make your connections. So I've made a lot of connections. Now, one of the most important things that Francisco, as a young upcoming scientist, will find out is that depending on where you go to work, if you're in academia, if you're a professor, you wanna be a full professor, uh, associate professor, when you wanna get promoted in the federal government too, you're going to need 10 experts in your field or you're going to need some experts in your field to vouch for you. You will find those right at the meetings, but you grow with them. So you become not just colleagues, you know, you become collaborators, you become friends, and those people will stand up for you. I had to come up against that, and most of us will, no matter where. Anyways, the gala is where we get to meet 
uh, the new member reception, that's another great one, but the gala is where you meet everyone. Perfect. Well, that's a really good advice. I assume you're attending the gala, aren't you, Francisco? Definitely. I will not miss <laughs> that gala. <laughs> it's a great um, time to network, but also in the in the booth, like right, we share that you bring questions about the experts mm -hmm. that are there, like the, the people that develop the products or like the cytokines that you might are using and it's not mm -hmm. working or something's going on. That's the time for you to exchange and being able to learn from others and also, uh, Jason was mentioned about the, the greatness of having a mentorship, and that is, is phenomenal. And I will encourage everyone to not be afraid as a trainee to ask questions and be able to communicate and express yourself. And for those that are um, like me, close to move forward um, after um, earning the PhD, I would say that is a great opportunity for look for jobs and for postdocs and all those um, next steps in your career. So take advantage of AI. Yeah. That's great. It's a great place to look for postdoctoral positions for sure. Uh, this, there's definitely people also, you know, advertising them in their talks, and uh, so it's good. It's a good opportunity to do that. Um, just as a kind of a final topic, you we we kind of touched upon it, but also AI not only has a wonderful scientific program, excellent talks, access to boasters, to uh, you know smaller sessions. But also there's a lot of career uh, career focused uh, workshops and 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 talks. Um, maybe in the in your case, Francisco, did you attend any of these career uh, oriented uh, talks in the last meeting or are you planning to attend any in the upcoming one? Yeah, definitely. Every time that, that I attend the AI, I, I encourage everyone to attend the minority section where we exchange a lot of our um, problems that we're incurring in our home institutions or in the science. And it's, it's like a family because we all, there is there is a an exchange of um, of ideas that you learn. And now I learned that last year there was a woman um, section as well. And it was very um, excited to be able that to know that AI is pushing through many of the diversity, equity, and inclusion as well. Well, I guess we'll have to wrap up here. I know uh, you, Kiko, you mentioned, I know you've been to Chicago before, but for those who haven't, I give the advice of check out the food scene. It's one of the top food cities mm. in the country, but book in advance because other people know <laughs> that and they will be booked. Um, Can I also want just add one more thing? which is that, you know, AI is very pleased to um, offer for the second year a free childcare service at the Immunology 2024. And this is a great opportunity for parents to bring their kids. Uh, we provide a great uh, childcare. You can feel safe about, um, you know, child uh, care being given to your child. And so you can go to the poster session, go to the main symposium and come back and pick up your kids. That is so important. That's a great initiative. And I think I heard really good things about the one last year. And I heard many happy parents, especially those who are both of them are scientists and they're coming together. Uh, it makes makes a whole difference, doesn't it? It sure does. So I think uh, with this uh, very positive note, uh, we're going to wrap up our conversation. I just want to say that I'm looking forward to going. I've been in Chicago once. And I want to go visit that bean again, uh, that uh, space, space <laughs> legume. Uh, but uh, it's I'm very excited. I really thought it was such a pretty city. Uh, so I'm looking forward to visiting again. And well, hopefully uh, we will 
see you all uh, in there. So I hope that you'll come say hi. We are going to have a booth. Uh, we're going to probably be recording some uh, conversations with uh, participants uh, and we're going to be reporting every day on the highlights of the uh, presentation. So very, very excited. Jason Goldsmith, are you excited? Oh, yes. I am both excited for the conference and potentially to take you to Alinea's. Oh, well, you you better do. Well, that's all he thinks of. He's thank Thankfully, he is the one thinking about food. I'm like, I'll just get there and just, I'll eat I'll I'm just going to go to the cafeteria every day. I'm like, <laughs> deep, what, what, what is this deep dish pizza? Is that the Chicago thing to eat? Is it, is it from there? No, where is that from? Deep dish pizza is from Chicago. He's, he's wincing. He's wincing. I he's, don't know uh, if it's worth eating. And that's how you alienate the whole city of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> All right, please don't don't boo us, Chicago. Don't don't throw <laughs> tomatoes or things at us. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Akiko Iwasaki, Francisco Gomez Rivera, and Jason Augustine for talking to us about the upcoming AI meeting. And we're looking forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much for joining. Pleasure. Thank you. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on X at Podcast or via email at infoimmunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time. Bye.